electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. The U.S. versus China coming to a head on TikTok. The CEO answers Congress's call while regulators investigate how much TikTok knows about you. And there really are, from what I understand, unless I'm being Pollyannaish about it, two algorithms. Our Andrew Ross Sorkin joined today by Michael Santoli and Kayla Tausche. Is it in the interest of the U.S. government to allow the app to be downloaded millions more times? The Fed meets this week, but B of A's Savita Subramanian says the central bank's aggressive rate hike roadmap is not so clear. There is this prevailing assumption that rates are peaking out right now and they're just going to come down. Inflation is peaking. The Fed's probably going to pivot soon. I don't know if it's that easy. Plus, changes in the semiconductor supply chain, a Super Bowl locked, and an automaker alliance reset. Some people, the ugly Americans, call it Renault, but Renault. It's Monday, January 30th, 2023. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand by in three, two, one. There's Mike here. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC Live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Mike Santoli along with Andrew Ross Sorkin and Kayla Tausche. Joe and Becky are off today. Dow coming off a six-day win streak. That's its longest since October. And the NASDAQ coming off a more than 4% gain last week. That is its fourth winning week in a row. That's the longest since August. And now on pace for its best month since July. So obviously, uh, very fast start for stock markets. Treasury yields are actually uh, bouncing a little bit here. The the, uh, 10-year yield, uh, 3.54. The low this month was under 3.4. So lower Treasury yields, lower dollar. Uh, The idea the Fed might be done. And I guess uh, earnings uh, no worse than feared uh, have been the the formula for so far a happy uh, start to the market. But a lot going on this week to test that, Kayla. It is a busy week for investors, though. Buckle up. The Fed begins a two-day policy meeting tomorrow. That rate decision is due on Wednesday. Economists expect the central bank to step down to a quarter-point rate hike. That will be followed on Thursday by rate decisions from the European Central Bank and the Bank of England. Then on Friday, the Labor Department will release the January employment report after December's report showed some signs of wage growth cooling. Plus, this is the busiest week of earnings season with about 20 percent of the S&P 500 reporting. Too many companies to mention, each one by name, but a few highlights include McDonald's, Exxon and Pfizer. Those happen tomorrow. On Wednesday, Meta Platforms reports after the bell. Thursday, Alphabet, Amazon and Apple. They all report after the closing bell. So keep an eye on the Nasdaq in particular, Andrew, with all of those names set to be released. Should we talk a little bit about these auto giants? You know, some people, the ugly Americans call it 
Renault, but Renault, Nissan and Renault, they were restructuring what has been a decades long alliance. That deal uh, will equalize the company's cross shareholdings, reducing Renault's stake in Nissan from 43 percent to 15 percent. The move requires uh, approval of both boards. Renault would transfer 28.4 percent of its Nissan shares into a French trust. Voting rights in that trust would be neutralized for most decisions, but Renault would still benefit from dividends and proceeds of any share sales, we should say. Renault would instruct the trustee to sell those shares if commercially reasonable as part of a coordinated orderly process. And you might remember the story of Carlos Ghosn. And Carlos, to some degree, if you go back and think about it, was trying, I don't want to say he was trying to do this, but he was trying to do something at least closer to this. And not only got ousted from the company, but ended up in a prison in Japan, which he then escaped from. Uh, if you remember, in a what was it? In, it he, he put himself in a musical box or yeah. something, right? Musical instrument a box. Musical instrument or box. Sort, and smuggled and then himself ends up, out. Yeah. Smuggled himself out and ends up in Beirut. That's right. And I guess that's right. He was looking to kind of to loosen re- the bonds between yes. these companies exactly. uh, for a while. Yeah, and, and I don't know if you guys have seen the documentary, The Last Flight, about the rise of Renault and the, you know, the, the coming of age of Carlos Ghosn as part of these two companies. But there was a lot of consternation from Renault management that Carlos Ghosn was spending as much time continuing to manage Nissan, uh, despite the fact that, you know, of course, Renault is a French company and this was, you know, a mere holding of the company. But the compensation, according to the documentary was so much higher for Nissan than it was for Renault that that's why they believed he didn't want to sever ties with that company. But it will be interesting to see how this actually plays out uh, on the ground, how long it will take and and how the trust is restructured after the fact. Yeah, it's it's, It's an interesting drama. And I mean, what we should do to the producers who are listening, we should find Carlos Ghosn and have him call into the show this morning. That would be the commentary of the morning that I'd be curious about. So. Meanwhile, here in Washington, TikTok CEO has reportedly agreed to appear before Congress. The Wall Street Journal reporting that Sho Chu will appear before the House Energy and Commerce Committee on March 23rd. This would mark the first appearance of a TikTok CEO before a congressional panel. He will be the lone witness in that hearing. It comes amid increasing scrutiny of the Chinese-owned social media app. Uh, by Congress. Andrew, I know that you have speak, have spoken with uh, Sho, and there was an interesting conversation yesterday with the uh, two ch- uh, co-chairs of the Intelligence Committee, you know, essentially saying that the national security arguments against TikTok are ramping up. And you know, what I hear from a lot of people here in Washington is that even if there's a, a specific technical data fix, that you know, just the idea that, that Beijing can control some of these algorithms, control uh, what the 200 million users of TikTok here in the U.S. can see, and the fact that there's this asymmetry between Washington and Beijing, where U.S. companies are not allowed to grow and expand uh, with China's user base, but TikTok is now the most popular app here. So, so I think that there's a there's sort of a practical reality that we have to. And well, there's two two pieces. One is so a month from now we'll we'll hear from him. More than a month from now we'll hear from him, which means that actually there will be likely no action between now and then. That might actually, oddly enough, be a good thing in terms for for, for, for TikTok's purposes. Um, the you mean the, from t- the the CFIUS committee that's been reviewing right. the structure right. of the, the deal for more the than the dual sided nature of this meaning. We can't do business there. They're doing business here. That's very real. The question that I have, and I 
I've spent an enormous amount of time now trying to research and report what, what it means to be, a, to be separate. And, you know, they're building this separate entity that'd be um, effectively living on these, these Oracle uh, servers. I don't know. I actually think you'd feel pretty good about that component part of it. So when you hear people say, well, they could still can control it, well, I, I'm not so sure about that part either. And there really are, from what I understand, unless I'm being Pollyannish about it, two algorithms. So meaning the algorithm that runs in China for the Chinese people is a very different algorithm already than the one that runs here. So I don't, I, I, I you know, I know it's very popular to be super China hawkish right now, and there's lots of reasons to be super China hawkish about for security reasons and others. I don't know if unto it, it again, it depends. Do you think that they are taking your data today? I, that to me, I'm a little less concerned about than maybe taking your data risk, in the Andrew, future. But if there's a risk, that they would take your data in the future, right. is it in the interest of the U.S. government, but Congress, or the executive branch to allow what, the app to be downloaded? millions more times right, but or unclear have whether users they could. being that much more right. um, hooked into it. The question to me still. Unclear. So you think the skepticism that surrounds this idea that there could be a functional separation that we could be confident that is actually sequestered from 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 Chinese eyes is, is, is a little bit overstated. That's, that's, that's where I'm at. Yeah. I think that if you actually are living on separate yeah. servers, that it's verifiable that it's on separate servers, that the algo's uh, separate. Now, the question is, could overnight, could someone call from Beijing and say, you need to completely redo all of this? Could it get all redone, you know, in the cover of night? Maybe. I don't know. But, by the way, all the people who would be operating that would be in the United States. Yeah, yeah but, Andrew, the other angle that, that I keep hearing, too, is just the the level of government involvement that would be required to maintain this sort of structure for just one company. I mean, you're talking about dozens of government employees that would have to be enforcing whatever solution ends up getting agreed on if that is, in fact, the route that they end up taking here. And so is that the best use of government resources here in the United States just to keep an eye on one deal in particular when there is just such a high volume of other things to be to be looking into. I mean, that's the, oh, the argument. I would add one element to that, though. I think they're going to make TikTok pay for that, meaning you're going to pay for the service. If, if there's a service fee, if, if, you have to, if we have to hire 10 Americans who are going to oversee this, you know who's going to pay the bill for that? I think Not it would be closer to 30, Andrew. Call it 30. I think that TikTok pays for the 30. Philadelphia Eagles and Kansas City Chiefs are headed to the Super Bowl. The Chiefs and Bengals appeared to be headed to overtime in the AFC Championship game, but a late hit out of bounds on Patrick Mahomes generated a 15-yard penalty that helped the Chiefs get into field goal range for a game-winning kick. And the final score there was the Chiefs over the Bengals 23-20. Earlier in the day, the Eagles beat an injury-plagued 49ers team 31-7. Super Bowl 57 kicks off Sunday, February 12th. Arizona. Two weeks right? in Glendale, Arizona. Yes, uh, Kansas City, Philadelphia, they're both number one seeds. I guess this is kind of, you know, how things were stacked up before the playoffs started. But, uh, of course, to me, it means uh, re- a rerun of the 1980 World Series, which was Kansas City, Philadelphia. Yeah, we'll see uh, if, uh, if Jim Cramer has a voice this morning. Probably not. <laughs> well, there's Cramer, but I was going to say, you usually have, like, some market statistic about how you know, the market is supposed to go as a result of who actually makes the Super Bowl, and then there's a second statistic so that who stuff, wins the Super Bowl. That stuff sort of fell apart uh, a few years back. That stuff got built up when there were only, let's say, 
25 Super Bowls ever, and it was a small sample size, and it seemed like it was if it was a team from the old original National Football League uh-huh. that won, it was more bullish for the market than not. But I think that stuff is frayed around the edges, unfortunately. Correlation, We're not going to have to go back to being exactly. in the dark about where the market's going. Cheese will be next. Next, on Squawk Pod, the markets versus the Federal Reserve, ahead of the Fed's next rate-setting meeting this week. And an investing tip from Bank of America's Savita Subramanian. I think I would just buy small cap value at this point. I mean, if you think about it, large cap growth has had its heyday. I'm sorry to get all quanty on you. No, please, it's nerd out. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC, and today Andrew Ross Sorkin is joined on set at the NASDAQ market site by Michael Santoli. Five, track, pro in, stand by to roll it. Three, two, roll, pray, track, take. Mike kicks things off. Our next guest says Wall Street is bearish on stocks coming into the year and bullish on bonds. However, she at this point prefers stocks over bonds, even if the path might not be too easy for either one. Let's bring in Savita Subramanian. She is head of U.S. equity and ESG strategy at B of A Securities. Good to see you, Savita. Nice to see you as well. Um, There's been a few themes this month, I guess, which is this year, um, that have been dramatically somewhat different from what happened last year, right? You've seen a lot of risk appetite uh, picking up. Um, Earnings season, not great, but seems like the market might have already been positioned for it. Where does that leave us? Up, you know, 6% in the S&P in less than a month. Yeah, 6%. Uh, So it feels like a pretty violent move. And I think a lot of it was, was really just really bearish positioning heading into the year. And one of the things that we look at is just sentiment across Wall Street by, you know, sell siders, buy siders. And there were two things that stuck out to me. Um, one, Wall Street asset allocation. Brokers lowered their allocation to stocks last year by six full percentage points. This is one of the fastest, biggest moves that we've seen in the history of our data. And they put all of that money in bonds. So everybody loves bonds at the beginning of the year. And then if you looked at hedge funds, hedge funds actually ramped up to a 40 percent net long exposure to regulated utilities. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, I mean, this is like the weirdest setup for, for, you know, investors with risk appetites. So our view was, okay, if everybody loves bonds and hates stocks, it's probably not going to work in the, you know, in the beginning of the year. And I think that going forward, there's this prevailing assumption that rates are peaking out right now and they're just going to come down. Inflation is peaking. The Fed's probably going to pivot soon. I don't know if it's that easy. And I mean, when you look at the inflation measures, a lot of these stickier barometers of inflation are still relatively high. So, 
you know, I think that it's not a great setup for bonds yet either. So, yeah, it seems like the Fed's burden of proof for uh, thinking inflation is taken care of is still pretty high. Yes. Um, so you think yields have room to the upside? And I guess what does that mean overall uh, for other asset classes? I think yields have room to the upside. I mean, think about it, quantitative tightening. So we're moving from the two biggest buyers of the 10-year, the Fed and China, basically have left the building. And that demand vacuum, I mean, I don't know who's going to fill it. And, you know, if you look across the globe, central bankers everywhere are relatively tight. So I think this is an environment where we can't just bet on lower for longer everything. I think we need to think about you know, rotating out of certain low rate beneficiaries into other parts of the market. And there are lots of really great opportunities right now in our view. I mean, there's a story you can tell just reading the market and saying, yes, people are underexposed to stocks coming into the year, but I'm seeing steel stocks hit new highs. Um, you see consumer cyclicals doing a little bit better. Right. Um, last year, the S&P went down, you know, 25 percent from high to low while earnings were still at a record. So maybe we've positioned for, you know, lower profitability. In other words, there's a bullish case to be made right now. But now it seems like it has to prove yes or no. There not. is a bull case to be made. And I think the bull case is exactly what you point out, which is. The market has decoupled, and we've seen new leadership from commodities, which I think are really interesting right now. I mean, when you look at commodities, this is a complex that actually has supply discipline today. And I think this is a game changer for commodities and commodity stocks. When you think about it, you know, oil companies are not flooding the market with extra supply. They're actually staying very disciplined in terms of production. Maybe they're producing right. too little. So, you know, earnings could get smoother for these areas of the market, whereas tech, which I think was, you know, the, the poster child for globalization, low interest rates, like everything that we enjoyed for the last 20 years, is maybe in the penalty box today for a little bit but longer than But is there a value think. proposition there? Meaning you look at the multiples have come down. Maybe there's, by the way, they still may be too high. Yeah, yeah. I think, what, what does it have to come down to where you say, okay, th there's value It's time value to here. step in. Okay, right. so there's two things that we're waiting for for tech. One is people need to stop asking us about tech because this is the <laughs> question I get all the time in meetings. You know, is it time to buy tech? It looks so cheap. Um, so that's the first thing. And the second thing is if you look at why tech is cheap, it's because prices are falling faster than analysts are taking down earnings expectations. And when we look at these and you know these types of value traps, they're never that's not the time you want to buy. You want to buy when earnings expectations are being revised higher and prices haven't necessarily discounted that information. And I don't think that's the setup we're at right now. I mean the other thing about tech companies is you know they're doing all the right things. They're you know they're they're cost cutting, they're they're executing layoffs. But they actually overhired pretty aggressively over the last three years. In fact, we looked at the number of employees that tech companies added. They added 80% new employees, but their sales growth was only 60% on a real basis. So they overshot employees by 20%, which I think is, you know, that's some capacity they have to work off of. Yeah, and you, you do mention that, um, you know, we've gotten used to certain earnings drivers over the past, you know, couple of decades. Uh, there, there's certainly one conclusion you can draw, which is, especially in the last few years, companies have over-earned relative to the yes. long-term trend of profit growth. Exactly. Um, I guess where does that leave us? I mean, you're, we're pushing 18 times earnings on the S&P 500 on a forward basis right now. Um, if you take out the top six biggest stocks, it's a lot lower than that. But still, um, what do you think we should expect for actual 
earnings, the earnings path from here for companies? You know, I think we're in an environment where earnings growth has tracked something like 11% per year for the last 20 years. I mean, it's wonderful, a great time to be in stocks. I think we're moving to a lower, lower earnings growth environment, maybe something closer to 7%. I do think there's going to be a massive transition in terms of the constitution of the S&P 500. So think about it. The market today is mostly tech and very, very little consumer real economy plays. I think that's going to shift over time. And what we like is buy real economy. I think this might be the best opportunity to generate alpha in my career, but it involves, you know, not looking in the right. rear view mirror and okay, looking so ahead. There's a lot of viewers who have followed the Warren Buffett playbook of owning the S&P or index funds more broadly. Yes. What do they do? Don't own the index. Don't right own now. the index. I would be selective. And selectivity doesn't mean you have to pick stocks. You can buy sector ETFs. You can buy different indices like the Russell 2000, rest of world. But I think the S&P 500 right now has this major risk of being the most crowded ticker in the world. So if you think about it, passive has overtaken active right. in terms of overall exposure. Pension funds replaced active exposure with S&P index. Everybody bought the index. The index did great. And now we're sitting here with actual liquidity risk in right. the S&P 500, which is oh, a weird Oh, I disagree. Setup. That's why I asked the question. Yeah. The question yeah. But then the question becomes, okay, you're an investor out there. Yes. You're not going to buy individual stocks for whatever reason or commodity. Which of the indexes, to the extent there are indexes either actively managed or passive ETF, whatever, yeah. which, you know, how would you do it? I think I would just buy small cap value at this point. I mean, if you think about it, large cap growth has had its heyday. I mean, we've had everything go right. But is that right. buy it, set it, forget it? Or is that own it and keep looking every day because no, no, in no, no, five no. months you might have to get in and out fast? I think you want to set it and forget it. And then you, 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 know, you play around the corners with you know, different, different right. areas. Like maybe tech works for a little while and then you sell it. But I think what you want to do for the long haul is buy small cap value, set it and forget it. I mean, we're at a good point right now where the small cap value benchmark is at record cheapness versus large caps. So, you know, that to me would be if I were Warren Buffett and I were looking around at all the, you know, the bombed out areas of the index market, it would be small cap value. At I mean, the, the environment that you describe really sounds a lot like the very early 2000s in a lot of ways. Yeah, right? you had this exactly. sort of big crash in large cap growth, long hangover in that sector of the market, but small cap value, the equal weighted indexes, and then really real, real asset plays, right? Exactly. You had the big commodity and emerging markets boom. Is that the kind of rerun that we're looking for? I think, I mean, not exactly. And I think that what's also taking place is this pivot from fossil fuels to renewables. So I think, you know, we're in an environment where, where you know, kind of quote unquote brown sectors like fossil fuels and green sectors like renewables can both do well at the same time. And that might be a little bit different than what we saw in the in the 2000s. You, you, you have like a 4,000 S&P target, which is kind of where we are, right? Kind of so, where but we within are, yeah. there, there's a lot of swings back. Yeah, and forth. exactly. I think it's going to be kind of a grind for the year, but but the internals are going to be really interesting. And like I said, I mean, when you look at dispersion of valuations right now, and sorry to get all quanty on yeah. you, but no, please. Um, <laughs> but but it's nerd out. It's only 7:38 <laughs> in the morning. 
<laughs> That's right. We need a little math in our lives. Um, so when you look at the dispersion of valuation across the market right now, it is very high, which means that there are super cheap stocks and super expensive stocks. And that mean reversion alpha right now is uh, is tremendous. I mean, I think it's a, an exciting time to be an investor. Well, that's that's also the early 2000s. That was kind of the heyday of when long short hedge funds became, you know, kind of the superstars. Anyway. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so, does it feel to you as if, if nothing else, the lows are probably in for the the S and P? Or we we can't say that. Oh no, I don't think we can say that oh, yet. No. <laughs> I oh, wish no. I could. <laughs> but I think, um, look, I don't think the lows are in for the S&P 500. I think we could swing down to 3,000 if we see, uh, yeah, I know, this is not our base case, but let's say that, you know, the Fed hasn't controlled inflation. They're going to tighten much more aggressively than what the market is pricing in. I mean, the market right now is pricing in inflation of about 3%, and we're nowhere near that number. So I think that's the, the swing factor that could, uh, that could make things worse rather than better. And just so folks have the, the sort of mental accounting, um, the low was like 3,500 in October-ish. Um, we're and, about 4,000 now. And, and 3,000 would be like a 38% drop. From it would, peak, yeah. I which, mean, that's, you know, again, not our base case. Sure. And I think that companies are navigating wow. this better yeah. than, than they could. But, uh, but that's, you know, as bad as it could get. It's got to be in the spectrum of possibilities. Exactly. We'll Savita, great wow. to catch up with you. Thanks. Yeah, great to be here. Appreciate Thanks it. for depressing us. Savita, <laughs> nice to see you. Coming up, the rest of today's stories that got us squawking, from a computer chip boom to a glut. Wow. And artificial intelligence coming to China's search engines. A lot of chatter about the Googles of the world uh, thinking, wow, we have to pivot ourselves. Squawk Pod will be right back. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We're live at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin, along with Mike Santoli and Kayla Tausche, who join us this morning, or I should say she joins us this morning from Washington, D.C. Joe and Becky are off. A couple of big corporate headlines to tell you about. First, Samsung Electronics now considering cutting chip production. This is according to the Korea Economic Daily. Comes amid growing concern from the industry that the electronics giant will post a first quarter operating loss due to a slowdown in demand during the holiday spending season. If this were true, it's possible, it sort of follow what we've been hearing from Intel and everybody else exactly. in the chip, chip making space, which is, fu- I don't want to say it's funny. It's ironic given that for the last three years, all we did was complain about the chip shortage. That's right. We complained about the chip shortage, and then I think there was a secondary concern once we got through that, that Samsung and others might just continue overproducing, and all of a sudden we're not going to ever bottom out the cycle. So uh, this seems to be a recognition of kind of what's been going on with other companies, and, and maybe they'll try to rationalize production a little bit here. Kayla, what do you think? Well, I think that the irony is palpable, especially here in Washington with the full court press from the executives that they need all of this funding that's going to be dispersed later this year to build these new facilities. 
But I think it's also interesting, given that, you know, the U.S. and now other countries are also taking steps to limit uh, the possibility of having another end customer for some of these chips with Japan and the Netherlands now joining the U.S. reportedly to limit some of these chips exports to China to be able to kneecap China's ability to advance its military development. So, you know, you're cutting off a big potential customer at the same time that you have a massive glut uh, in warehouses and in and, and inventory, uh, especially here in the U.S. Um, but the, the dynamic, given those two factors, is, is not a good one. Sounds like there's going to be a lot of recriminations, potentially, uh, about all this money that's being spent on uh, uh, the chip subsidies and the like. We'll see. Take a look at this uh, headline this morning. China's largest search engine, Baidu, now reportedly planning to roll out an AI chatbot service. It would be similar, apparently, to OpenAI's chat GDP uh, this March. According to multiple reports, the company initially planning to embed it in its main search service before expanding into other areas. And this is one of the reasons that you're hearing a lot of chatter about the Googles of the world uh, thinking, wow, we have to pivot ourselves because if this kind of service really works in the chat universe, I'm not in the chat, in the search universe, and, and you're seeing these guys attach it to search, what does that really mean? Yeah, and I mean, it's interesting because Google's been, you know, kind of on the ground floor of a lot of this research. They talk about how they have the capabilities, but there's a bit of a philosophical uh, kind of choice to be made right. here, right? Because Google's like, no, we're going to send you to the actual links, the sources, the things we can sell ads against, as opposed to just, you know, trying to guess what you're looking for and giving you a reasonable answer. So, other than, look, I've now played with this. I don't know, I'm sure everybody, a lot of folks have played with it. I want a sort of uh, footnoted version of Something it. Something authoritative. Right? So it's, fi it's fine to me, and it's so cool if it would, you know, write out. The, the, the essay, the letter, the memo, whatever. But I kind of want to know where it got the information from so I can track back and say, okay, is this accurate? Is this right? Sure. I want to make some choices here. It's sort of an but, open but source that, database for what it's getting. Does that remove the magic, right? It, the whole thing is like a little bit of a magic trick for most people at the moment. But if, if I showed you the sources, does it make it less valuable or more valuable? I think probably more valuable, especially for, you know, high schoolers trying to get it to write a term paper and needing to put footnotes on it. Yeah. But I'll, I kid, but. I'll, I'll tell you the next piece, and I think it's one of the reasons why you don't see it at the moment. Long-term content creators, whether it be, by the way, NBC Universal or The New York Times or The Wall Street Journal or um, song publishers, they, I think, are going to say, hey, you want to train your service using using our material, not, not even that you're, you're just, you're, you're citing the material, but you want to train it off of our material, you're going to pay a licensing fee that's going to be a pricey licensing fee. And that un, potentially could upend some of the economics of this. I mean, it's expensive already. That's I think. what they're saying. It's already less efficient and expensive. It's got to do a lot of computation and things like that. So we'll see. And that's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for starting off your Monday, your week with us. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears. Follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. And we are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. 
like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.